So I'm going to have you stand for the reading of the word this morning. And uh, this is an introduction to God from 1 Peter. I'm going to be going through 1 and 2 Peter over the course of the next months. The title of these messages, Stand Firm. Boy, do we need to stand firm ever today, right, with what's going on in the world. And um, you know what, I'm, I, I was I'm going to read through verse 3. I'm going to read just verses 1 and 2 to you uh, this morning, and we're going to talk about it. So the first word that we get here from Peter in the introduction, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord God, your word, Lord, as we come to it, we need to come to it with humility. We need to come to it, Lord God, with faith. We need to come to it with trust. We need to come to it through the teaching of the Spirit of God for us to be able to understand it, for us uh, to be able to grasp onto it and experience the meaning of it. So, Lord God, we pray this today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see to look deeply into your word, to hear the voice of Jesus speaking into our life. For Lord God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, Peter, he first introduces himself, right? Peter, the apostle, he is the brother, right, of Andrew. He's one of the select, right, inner circle of Jesus, James and John and Peter. He is the fisherman. He is the one who (laughs) denied the Lord three times. And you see this kind of this duplicity in Peter. He's at times prideful and at other times he's powerful. Prideful in the Gospels, powerful in the book of Acts when he would preach on Pentecost Sunday and lead 3,000 people to Christ. And he writes here in in these letters, he's talking to a church that is going through persecution. And he is affirming and he is encouraging them and exhorting them to stand firm. If you you look at what's going on in the world, do you realize that there have been a number of shootings in churches in these last months? And um, most of them have basically been caused by transgender people. I don't know if you realize that. The shooting of the school down in Tennessee the shooting of uh, the church last um, last Sunday, uh, another shooting that had happened in Colorado. Um, these people are being stirred, and they're being stirred. Listen, the media. There's there's hatred growing more and more against Christians. Just just the mention of God to these to these crazies just infuriates them. And right now, I think that. Again, it's a time, there's, there is a, I believe, there is persecutions that are going on in the church. You know, there are a number of churches that have been burned down in the United States. And you know what? Most of them have been Catholic churches. I don't know if you know that. But people who are standing up for Jesus, they are experiencing persecution. And uh, again, the Lord said that would happen more and more as we get closer and closer to his return. So, again, I think... The letters of First and Second Peter are relevant with what he is instructing the church to do and who they're, you know, he's instructing them to be in light of what's going on. Now, he's writing here to the pilgrims, and he mentions again Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and a pilgrim is somebody who is passing through. A pilgrim is somebody who is not home. We are not home. This is not. This is not our world. Bible says that this is a world that's under the dominion of Satan. He's the ruler of the world. You know, Jesus said that in the Gospel of John three times. He's the prince and power of the air. He's the God of this age, the ruler of this age. And we are pilgrims, right? We are pilgrims. I don't know, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize, right, that you don't fit in here. I mean, I mean you have to be realizing that. If you feel like you really fit in, you fit into this world, a world that's in opposition to Jesus, opposition to God. I'll tell you, it, it would probably, you know, be, a, you know, a sign that maybe you don't belong to him. The closer you get to him, the more, you know, you're coming to realize that 
that you're in a foreign place. Heaven is our home. Being home with Jesus, that's, that's where we were you know, called and we're destined to be. So he, he writes here to these believers. And now these are believers who are Jews and they are believers who are Gentiles. And most of them are the fruit of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul who called himself the Apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the Apostle to the Jews. But if you look here, this, this area that he is describing here, this, is, this would be modern day Turkey. Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, Greece is here. And this is the area that he is writing to. And again, you can see Galatia and Pontius, Capo, you know, uh, Cappadocia. And when we come to the, the book of the Revelation, you see the seven churches, they all populated this area of Turkey. So these are the believers, essentially, in the time of the letters being written that Peter is writing to. But I believe that, again, it's, it's generic. It's, it's speaking of all believers. Believers... Um, all throughout the world, believers of any time, believers in any place. It speaks to us. Now he introduces himself, then he introduces God. And you have that in the first two verses. He, intro he introduces God. By the way, who is one? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Yet, he is one who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God existing in three persons, essentially one essence, one substance, one nature, but yet three persons. And some people have a major problem with this. How can you explain it? Well, it's a mystery. He's God. And maybe if you could wrap your mind around God completely, maybe you're God, <clears throat> which you're not. I'm going to use an illustration, and it's a, it's a feeble illustration. It's a very weak illustration. Uh, in no way do I want to compare and say that God is H2O, okay? But we know that, we know that H2O, right, if you have two molecules of hydrogen, one molecule of oxygen, did I get that right? Okay our teacher, science teacher. You have, you have, right, you could have it as solid ice, liquid water, and gas vapor. Now, three essentially different substances, okay, but the same essence. So if you broke down the molecular structure, the molecules never change, they're still H2O, whether, you know, it's ice, whether it's water, whether it's vapor. Now again, that, that is a, a very feeble, and weak illustration, but that's the best illustration I can give you of where you have diversity and unity. And you have diversity and unity in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who is one, yet again, who is manifested in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what I would like to do here this morning is talk to you about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put it in the order that Peter did, which was the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So the first I'd like to talk to you about is God our Father. So in verses uh, 1 and 2, he says here in verse 2, to the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So when Jesus was teaching the apostles to pray. He said, when you pray, pray our Father who art in heaven. Jesus in the garden called his father Abba. Talk to and listen to a little child. Listen to a little Jewish child. What do they call their father? Abba. It's the English of that would be daddy. Jewish families that live all around me and they all, right, the little ones call their, their fathers Abba. A word of, a, a word of intimacy. When we accepted Jesus Christ into our life as our Lord and Savior, and realize you must make that decision. Nobody is born a Christian, okay? Right? God has many children, he has no grandchildren. So when you receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, one of the things that happened was you were adopted into God's family. 
So people say, well, everyone is a child of God. No, that's not what the scripture teaches. It is those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ who have been adopted into the family of God. Right, that is, that, that is key. We are his children. Now here, if you look, it says the elect. The, the word electos uh, is a word that describes being chosen, being selected, or being God's favorite. Do you realize that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into God's family and you are his favorites? The favorites of God. So the picture here is God has selected you. He has selected you to follow Jesus. He has selected you to have this relationship with Jesus, and he has selected you to become one of his favorites. Now, that's, that to me, it, that, that just screams of privilege. Because my children and grandchildren have far greater privileges with me than anybody else does in this world. Right? They're privileged. And God has, has privileged us. I just want to, I said this on, on Wednesday when I was teaching. If you are a true believer and follower of Jesus, God asks much of you. Because with privilege comes great responsibility. But if you are a true believer, God asks much of you. You may say, well, he asks much of your time. He asks you to be here today to worship him. He asks of your money. Oh no, pastor, don't talk about money. Yes, he asks about money. He... But more than, than time and money, he asks for your heart, your devotion, your commitment. Now, if you're not a believer, God doesn't ask much of you. Do you realize that? When I was an unbeliever, God didn't ask anything of me other than that I would repent and believe in his son. Since becoming a believer, God asks a whole lot of me. God is always asking me to do things. Go see this person. Go call this person. Go spend time with this person. Go up to the hospital and visit this person. Pray for this person. Give to this person. Before, God didn't ask anything of me other than just repent and believe. So, being a child of God is a thing of great privilege. So we are elect, right? We are the electos, we are the, the chosen, we are the ones who have been selected to be his children. And again, it's a great privilege. Now, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I want you to notice the word foreknowledge. So people come and they say, well, does that mean that God just chooses one and damns another and you get into hyper-Calvinism and all these crazy teachings? And no, that's not, that's not what this is saying. Foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29-30. I taught on this a few weeks ago. I'll just skim over it. For whom he foreknew. The, wor the word is to know beforehand. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. The, the word therefore for know is progenesco. Again, it, it means to know before something happens. Right? 26% of the Bible is prophecy, and it's about predictions of things that have not happened yet. They're future things. In fact, the entire life, birth, uh, death, resurrection, miracles, ministry of Jesus, were all predicted beforehand. Over 400 prophecies that were written down by the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, right, Malachi, all these prophets wrote it down, all predicted beforehand of, of Jesus. So, for whom he foreknew, God foreknew me before I was born. God foreknew me before I was conceived. God foreknew me before he created the very foundations of the earth. And God saw me being drawn from the darkness into the light. God saw me 
on the night that I knelt down in a little apartment around the corner here on the cold bathroom floor in January, folded my hands over the sink, and repented of my sins and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. I went from being an atheist to becoming a Christian in that transformation. God saw that. And then he saw me following his son. He saw me praying. He saw me worshiping. He saw me going out and sharing the gospel with other people and witnessing. He, he saw me coming to love Jesus more and more. Coming to know him more and more. He saw me teaching his word, preaching his word, proclaiming his word. He saw all that before it ever happened. So it doesn't nullify my need to believe in Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't eliminate my need to repent and put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So people say, well, if God knew it all beforehand, we don't need to do anything. That's ignorance. He just saw it all before. And that is when, in his foreknowledge, what does it say? He predestined. In his foreknowledge, he justified. In his foreknowledge, one day he will glorify me and you. But that is, again, that's the, the foreknowledge of God. Did you get that? Because I taught on this a few, a, a few weeks, a few months ago, and some people came up to me, and they still didn't get it. I hope you got that. So it's not, again, God selecting one and damning another. God wants all men to be saved and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He just knows beforehand who's going to be saved and who's not. Again, it doesn't nullify our need to believe and to repent. Okay. God, our Father. So I want to do something with you for a few moments here. I want to brag about my father. I want to brag. I want to brag to you about my father. Because he's my father. He my dad. He my Abba. He my father. He my hero. So I want to brag about him for a few minutes. First thing. He's my provider. Matthew 6, 31-32. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What is it saying? God provides. The pagans, the people who are unbelievers, they live in constant worry, they live in constant fear, they live in constant anxiety. They're constantly listening to the, to the crazy voices of the world. Fear, fear, fear. The child of God trusts, he trusts, he trusts, she trusts in his Father in heaven, her Father in heaven. He is called Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh in the Hebrew, that the Lord will see to it, he will provide. Now, I'll say this to you. If you're a new believer, maybe you haven't found that to be totally true yet. I just want to say, as I've walked with the Lord for 42 years, he's just confirmed that over and over and over again. Over, over, and over again. He's provided. And he's, he's provided uh, abundantly. The, the, you know, the word, there's a great word that, that you can find in Isaiah chapter 58, 11. Where God guides, he provides. And when you are being guided by him... He will always provide for you. Now, I'll say this to you. If you refuse to be guided from him, good luck. But where he guides, he provides. And the beauty of that is, as you walk with him and he's providing for you, and, provi and sometimes, let me tell you, this whole church here, see this church here? This church is a miracle. Folks, I want to tell you, this church is a miracle. This church came out of nothing just a few years ago. This church, a few people got together and began to pray and seek the Lord. And, and God birthed the church. And I can tell you this. I don't know where. I don't know how. The money came into this place. Because there were times where we didn't have the money. To be able to buy this building. To pay for this building. To pay the rent on this bill. All the different things that, that we've done through the years. But God provided. And he just proved himself over and over and over again. Sometimes, you know, Diane, when she first came on board on staff, I remember 
she would be talking to Pastor Lou and I, and she'd be concerned about where's the money going to come from, where's the money coming and Pastor Lou and I would look at her and say, the Lord will provide. And he, he always provides. He is our protector. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. In the context here in John chapter 10, and always study the context of the passage, Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. I know my sheep. He leads the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. And when it says here that no one can snatch them out of my father's hand, I don't know if some of you remember this, me teaching this on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. What's the father's hand? Yeah, Jesus sits at the right hand of the father. When it describes in the Old Testament the hand of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord was upon them, and the hand of the Lord empowered them, and the hand of the Lord healed, it's a description of Jesus. So the, the picture here of Jesus as the good shepherd, right? He's holding his lambs in his arms. He's holding them in his hands. Do you realize that you are, you are safe there? The wolves, the wolves are always around. The wolves are around today. Sometimes they're in the church. The wolves are always around but as long as that, that lamb is in the arms, is in the hands of the good shepherd, those wolves can't touch him. Now, the sheep wander away. Right, you know this. All you have to look at, at you look at the animal kingdom. Who do the wolves go after? The weak, the sick, the lame. The wolves go after the ones who wander away, right? from the herd or from the flock. But we are safe. We are safe and we are secure in his hand. My father, your father, he's loving. See what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. He loves us so much that he has brought us in and adopted us to be his children. Children of privilege. So a long time ago, <laughs> my ancient history, I was running a physical therapy uh, fitness center in Paramus, and there was a man who came in. He was the chaplain of the Giants. who's was a Catholic priest. Good guy. Got to know him. We'd sit. We'd talk. We'd have, we'd have good conversation, and we'd debate. And one day, one day he said to me, when you pray, do you, you know, do you pray right to God? Do you pray right, you know, to Jesus? And I said, yeah, I go, I go right to him. And he said, well, you know, he goes, you need to pray through the saints. Well, you need to go through Mary. And he said, and he made, a, he made a really good point. He goes, if you wanted to go to the president, I think it was Ronald Reagan at the time, he goes, you couldn't, you couldn't go right to the president. You have to go through one of his cabinet members or one of his ministers to get to him, right? I mean, if you wanted, if you wanted to get to the president of the United States today, uh, you'd have to go through, right, one of his cabinet members to get to him. So I looked at him, I said, well, that's true, unless, unless I'm his son. That's, that's JFK, he was president of the United States back in the 1960s. He's the most powerful man in the free world. And that's JFK Jr. Who could come and sit right at his feet, right up on his lap. Why? Because he's his son. We have, we have access to our loving father because we are his sons and his daughters. My grandson, at times, through the months, he would just open the door and come in when I'm doing a webinar. And he'd just come in and climb up on my lap. He had access to me. My children, access to me. My father, your father, is faithful. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. He is a faithful father. 
He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. He means what he says and says what he means. His yes is yes and his no is no. He is a father of integrity. He is a father of fidelity. He is a father who is reliable. He is a father who is consistent. He is a father who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not flaky. He's not fickle. And he's somebody you can always rely and depend upon. He is a rock. He is unchangeable. He is immutable. He is a faithful father. Now you may have had unfaithful fathers. But he is a faithful father. And he is always faithful. Always faithful. Isn't that good? Always rely on him. He is compassionate. The Lord is like a father to his children. Tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Remember the little girl, Jairus' daughter? I love that story because it's a story that, that really depicts the tenderness of God. Right, Jesus said, for he who has seen me has seen the Father, I and the Father are one. Right? You want to see what the Father's like, you look at the Son. Same nature. And he goes in and that little girl, 12-year-old girl, mother and father, heart's broken. Puts out all the unbelievers. <laughs> oh, when you go to pray for somebody, you want to get the, believer, the unbelievers out of the room. I'll just tell you that. I'm very selective who I take with me when we go places to pray for people. There's some people I don't want them, I don't want them with me. He puts them out. Got the mother and father there. Got the inner circle there with him. And then he takes that little girl's hand. What does he say? Gloria, what did he say? Talitho kumi, little lamb, little lamb, rise. And the little lamb rose from death to life. And you see there, you see that, again, the incredible tenderness of the Lord. The tenderness of the Father just being radiating from Jesus. And then what does he say? Give her something to eat. Just a little thing. He raises her from the dead. Now you're still concerned. She hasn't eaten anything in a while. Give her something to eat. Our Father is merciful. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You understand, you understand what mercy is? Mercy is God doesn't give us what we deserve. I deserve hell. I, I deserve condemnation. I deserve to be separated from the love and the forgiveness of God. I deserve to be punished for my sins. I've sinned much. I've sinned much. Even now. As a pastor, as I still fall short in sin. Sometimes I know what good to do and I don't do it. Sometimes I know the bad and I do it. Paul called himself the chief sinner. I could say, I'm a chief sinner. But what has he done? He's shown me mercy. He, he, has, given, he has given me abundant mercy. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done. And then one more, he is good. I know we, people say that, right? God is good, what do they say? I, some of the catchphrases, we, you know, we overuse them. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The perfect gift. A gift is something that is freely given. A, a the concept of the gift is the grace of God. So on Valentine's Day, my beautiful wife came uh, home and she had a big bag filled with all kinds of delicious, healthy treats. All kinds of delicious, healthy treats that she went shopping and sought out for me. She gave them to me. What do you do when you get a gift? What do you, 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 you take it. You receive it. You say thank you. 
You can't buy it. I couldn't say, hey, let me give you the money to go out. You know, let me give you the money to pay for the, uh, you know, the gifts that you gave. No, you, you just take it. You receive it. That's the blessings of God in our life. He has, he has blessed our life with a basket of free gifts. Undeserved. You just, grace, mercy is God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is God gives us everything that we don't deserve. My wife, my children, my grandchildren, my ministry, my careers, my home, my possessions, my health, all these things are gifts from God. And, and they're gifts that I am thankful for. Let me tell you something, every day. So he is a father who is good. So I just wanted to brag on my father a little bit with you. Because that's my father. That's my Abba. That's my daddy. <laughs> and he's my hero. He's the best. Okay. Second. Little shorter. The Holy Spirit. Our sanctifier. So it says down in verse 2. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is the third person. He has personality. What makes a person a person? He has a will. He has emotions. He thinks. Uh, in the 16th chapter of John, Jesus calls him he, him, his. He uses personal pronouns. He is a person. He is, not, he is not a invisible force like the Jehovah Witnesses teach and the cults teach. He is, he is a person. The Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. And his main work, the main thing that the Spirit is seeking to do in your life is to sanctify you. That's the main thing he's seeking to do, to, to sanctify. What is sanctification? To set you apart positionally in Jesus. You belong now to Jesus. It also is a purification. He is seeking to purify you. He is seeking to make you holy. Make you different. You know, Talking different, having different motives, having different ambitions, having different goals than people who are outside of him, who don't know him. That is something that he is, he, he is doing. In fact, he is called the Holy Spirit. Look, he is the Holy Spirit, and what does the Word of God say? And we'll see this in a couple of weeks as we go through First Peter. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the Holy Spirit's primary work is to make you holy. More than give you what you want. More than, than helping you to accomplish your goals. More than, than empowering you to be his witnesses. More than giving you spiritual gifts. His main work in your life is to make you holy. And that is, that is to shape you and to mold you into his character. You say this, in our, in our vision of the church and mission of the church... Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. God is working all things. Right now you have things in your life. Maybe you're unhappy with something that's in your life. You're having problems financially in your life. Maybe you're not healthy right now in your life. Maybe there's difficulties at home in your life. Maybe some really good things happening in your life. Maybe major successes in your life. Maybe right now your investments are exploding right now. And God uses all of them. He's using everything that is going on in your life according to his purpose. For what? Watch verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's holiness. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Conform to his love. 
conform to his grace, conform to his mercy, conform to his holiness, conform to his excellence, conform to his power, conform to his truth, conform to his purity, conform to his faith, being conformed. Not that we're becoming gods, but conform to his character. That is the, um, the David, I put a fig leaf on him. That is considered the greatest sculpture in the history of art, the David. He said, it's the greatest sculpture ever made. It was made by Michelangelo. Some people said it's perfect. Perfection. That is what God is working towards in our lives, to perfect us. You know where we are right now? Here we are. That's me on the right. These are actually um, unfinished sculptures by Michelangelo. You go to Rome and you can see them. They're unfinished works. Uh, notice um, some are missing limbs, heads, noses, eyes, mouths, ears. But what the Holy Spirit is doing, he is working in us, conforming us to the image of Yeshua. That is what sanctification is. And sanctification involves, it involves both crisis and process. So there are times of crisis where you're going to experience God all of a sudden cutting off a block of marble from your life and it, sometimes it hurts. God may be doing that in some of your lives right now. I mean, he's got the hammer and chisel out and he's just pounding away on your life and you may be wondering what's going on, but he will do that. He will do that in your life. He will break you to make you. He will drill you to perfect you. And that is crisis. For the most of the time, it's process. And process is where God is, you know what, he's, he's just taking the file. Right, he's taking the sandpaper, and he's smoothing it. He's got out the polishing cloth and he's, he's polishing. That's process. And every once in a while, then there's crisis. But that is, that is what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives right now. What we can do to help him to move along more quickly, because, right, we're not a block of marble. We have freedom of will. And we can choose, we can choose to let him influence and work on us so we can resist him. So there's a word here in Ephesians chapter 5, 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Probably some of you are sick of me quoting that passage, but that to me is the key passage. When, when you are drunk with wine, you are what? Under its, you're under its influence. When you are filled with the Spirit, you are under his influence. And that's simply you're, you're, you're yielding to him. You're letting, you're letting him work in your life. You're, you're in his word. You're in prayer. You're in worship. You're about his business. And he's able to work. He's able to work in your life in magnificent ways. And you see people, when a person is filled with the spirit and under his influence, you see them, they, 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 they grow rapidly. They grow fast. You see somebody who's resisting his influence. I mean, sometimes you see them. I mean, in five years, they haven't changed a whole lot. Ten years, they haven't changed a whole lot. Twenty-five years, they haven't changed. They're still the same because they're resisting his work. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make us like Jesus. Sanctification. Last, Jesus, our Savior. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a, a debate, you can find it online in the church today, of what is it? Is it 
the blood or is it the sacrifice? And I believe they are two sides to the same coin. When it's talking about the blood of Jesus Christ, I believe it's talking about his sacrificial death and him giving his life, what he did on the cross, the actual substitutionary sacrifice. He took your place on the cross and died for you. Now, two of the same, again, two of the same things that again, Christians arguing about all the time. The blood of Jesus. What does it tell us in the book of Leviticus chapter 17, 11? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. A person gets stabbed, a person gets shot, they bleed out. As they bleed out, what happens? They die. The life is in the blood. Blood brings oxygen to all of the cells of the body. Blood brings nutrients to all of the cells of the body. Blood carries away carbon dioxide right down into the kidneys and the liver and cleanses the body from all the toxins. Blood is a life force. Blood is our physical life force. The blood of Jesus is his life force. The blood of Jesus gives us life. I'm not, I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper here. You can go into church and you, you, know, you can receive, like we do the Lord's Supper here once a month. We do it occasionally on Wednesdays. You can go and you can receive, you, know, you can receive communion a thousand times. How many people you see receive commun, communion in the church and then they walk out and I mean, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing Christ-like about them. There's nothing Christian about them. I mean, the things that are coming out of them, out the only, in fact, the only time they use the Lord's name is when they take it in vain. I don't know if that pisses you off, but it pisses me off. It, it, not, not them saying it. The unbelievers say it. But the person who dares to go to church and receive the Lord's Supper and then go and do that tells me that they've never known him, that they don't know him. It's just a bunch of, uh, of religion. Do you notice Jesus wasn't too high on religion? I like that about him. I'm watching, I'm watching The Chosen. I was saying to my wife, I like Jesus. Every time somebody comes up to me and says, you're a pastor, you must be very religious. I'm telling you, I am one of the most irreligious people you ever want to meet. I am not religious. I really hate religion. I think religion just screws people's minds up. With a bunch of rules, regulations, traditions, and rituals that never bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it was never meant to be a religion. It was meant to be a relationship with him. So what does Jesus have? Continuous conflict with the Sadducees. Continuous conflict with the Pharisees. Continuous conflict with the scribes, the religionists. And who are the people coming to him who are being saved? It's the sinners who realized that they were sinners. And they repented. They were the ones who were coming to him and being saved. Not, not the religious people who were filled with all their religion. Religion. Religious people will fill hell. Because religion just makes you self-righteous. And there ain't nothing righteous about us. All the righteousness has come from him and what he's done for us on the cross. So, his blood. Receive, receiving him. His blood. His life, right? The life is in the blood. That's what gives us life. That's what gives us eternal life. That's what gives us abundant life. I'll show you two things, and then I'm going to wrap up. First John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from... From... Yeah, all sin. The, the blood of Jesus washes us, it cleanses us, was the song go? What can wash away my sin? It washes us. The psychiatrist Hobart Mower, Hobart Mower. There weren't too many great American psychiatrists or psychologists. Hobart Mower is considered one of the great American psychologists. He did all this research on the effects of guilt on people who do not resolve it. Unresolved guilt and the problems it causes psychologically, emotionally, physically, relationally, that, that people who don't resolve this guilt that's inside of them, 
it always seems to cause illness, physical illness. It causes disease. It causes sickness. It causes problems in relation. It causes all kinds of problems. Hobart Moore, you can read his book. It's about that thick on all the research. And he found that, that the best thing to resolve guilt was confession. And he found that Christian people who went and they confessed their sins to God and received that forgiveness and received that grace, that they were healthier people. They were healthier psychologically. They were healthier physically. Their relationships were healthier. What does the Bible say? It, it, it says that if you sin, right, it says call the elders, right? If you're sinning and you have illness in your life, right? If you're sick, call the elders of the church and have them pray over you, but confess your sins to them. Because that, that sickness may be linked to the sin. And how many times you see Jesus, when Jesus healed people, right? What did he say to them? You're healed, your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. But apparently there was a link with that illness that they were having in their sins. So the, the, the beauty, again, the beauty of the blood of the Lord, it cleanses our conscience and washes away our guilt so that we are, we are free. One other thing here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Messiah, it is because of his blood, it is because of his death on the cross, we have now a way that we can come to God through it. So he has, he has made this, this wonderful, he has made this beautiful way that we can approach God because his blood has given us forgiveness love, acceptance. We are children of God through the blood of the Messiah. And we can come and we can draw near to Him. We can have confidence. We can have assurance that we are forgiven. We can have assurance that we are accepted as His own children because of, of what He has done for us. So that is Peter's introduction, right? To God. It's his introduction, right, to the Father. Who has chosen us to be his favorites. He introduces us to the Son. Whose blood washes away our sins. Enables us to draw near to him. And he introduces us to the Holy Spirit. Who sanctifies us. Making us holy and conforming us to the image of his Son. And you know what his final word is there? Grace to you and peace be multiplied. I want you to notice the word multiplied. Do you need some multiplication in your life right now? You understand what the world deals with? The, the world deals with addition and subtraction. God deals with multiplication. Right, right at the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. The fish and the loaves. Right, he didn't just take a few fish and make a few fish. He multiplied the fish and he multiplied the loaves to feed thousands of people. The multiplication of the church from 120, right, to 3,000 on Pentecost to then 5,000 and then multitudes of people through the ages. Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a, a little question here. What would you rather have? $1,000 given to you every day for the next 30 days. Or one penny given to you that doubles every day for 30 days. You understand the penny? It goes from one penny to two pennies to four pennies to eight pennies, 16 pennies, 32 pennies, 64 pennies, 168 pennies. Do you understand? Which one would you rather have? And you know, even if you don't do the math in your head, you know the law of compounding interest. By the way, the, the, the $1,000 in 30 days will be worth $30,000. The penny that is doubling every day will be worth over $10 million. Just wanna, God deals in multiplication. He doesn't deal in, in division, right? I'm sorry, in, in subtraction or addition. 
So you say, grace and peace to you, right, be multiplied. That you could right now, today, you can open up your heart to Jesus and say, multiply your grace to me. Like I said to you, everything good in my life is a grace gift. Everything. Multiply your grace to me. Multiply your peace to me. Peace is shalom, and it speaks about well-being of body, of soul, of spirit. You can have that multiplied in your life. Enter into God's, enter into God's realm of multiplication. It's cool. It really is. I see people in this world, sometimes in the churches, fighting for the scraps, fighting over a parking spot. Right? Do you ever see people like that? They'll fight. They'll get out and some women fighting with women, men fighting with men, and they'll get out and fight over a lousy parking spot. When God has enriched us and is willing to multiply, right? His blessings, his grace and peace into our lives in abundance. But you got you got to enter in to that multiplication. Think about that. Think about it. Because maybe you know you're sitting there saying, "Well, you know what? I don't have a lot. I'm kind of, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lean. I'm, I, I, I need more." And I, maybe you're not really entering in by faith that multiplication of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being our Savior. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being our Sanctifier. We thank you, Lord, you're a great God. And Lord God, we thank you that you have, Lord God, chosen us, you have called us, you have elected us to be your favorites. And we step into that multiplication today of blessing. Multiply your blessings, Lord God, of grace. Multiply your blessings of shalom, your peace, in the lives of those, Lord God, who sit at your feet today. For we all pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.